You're listening to 92Y Talks. What was it like to grow up in the place that bred influencers in just about every field of endeavor today? Arlene Alda's new book, Just Kids from the Bronx, examines the success stories that came out of the New York City borough. Regis Philbin, Alan Alda, and graffiti artists and muralists from Tats Crew sit down to discuss their Bronx upbringing. The conversation was recorded in front of a live audience on March 9th, 2015 at New York's 92nd Street Y. Thank you all. Thank you and and welcome to uh, this conversation. I'm really looking forward to this. This is, uh, these are renowned kids from the Bronx, all of them. And they've all become, they're all immensely talented and I'm here to show you can become talented just marrying someone from the Bronx. Arlene, the the book, just so people have an idea what the book is, how did it start? Is this something you've always wanted to do? Because I want to find out something about you tonight I didn't know. Let's see. What can I tell you that you don't already know? But for for the sake of everyone else, the book actually started as um, a lark. It was, I went back to the building that you know very well, the Mayflower, which is in the northeast section of the Bronx. But I went back with the CEO of J. Crew, Mickey Drexler, and Mickey also grew up in the building. But I didn't know him at the time. He grew up in the same building. In the same building. In and the you... same building. 96 apartments. Mickey is 11 years younger than I am. And we went back to, to just share memories. And as he was talking, he, point to his, he pointed to his windows. And I pointed to my windows. They were opposite one another. She could have married him court- instead of me. <laughs> That's right. Jeez. So, so as we talked, I thought, this is very beautiful. I know Mickey at this level of his achievement, but where did it all begin? It began in the Bronx. And so, so I thought, with that, I know a number of people, Regis for one, uh, who also grew up in the Bronx. Eileen searched st- far and wide for people from the Bronx. Regis <laughs> lives down the hall from us. <laughs> <laughs> He's always bothering me when I get the paper in the morning. <laughs> got a lot to say, you know. <laughs> well, incidentally, where are you from? I was born in Manhattan. <laughs> Big deal! <laughs> Boy, they turned against me as soon as I said that. <laughs> so how many people from okay. Bronx did you finally so, talk to? Okay, so ultimately, uh, I talked to 64 other people from the Bronx, and uh, they included people like Colin Powell, Al Pacino, Daniel Liebeskind, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Mary Higgins Clark, <clears throat> of course, Regis Philbin, Mickey Drexler, Milton Glaser, Jules Pfeiffer, and on and on and on, and, and uh, covered seven decades of people living in the Bronx, got to the guys at Tax, Tats Crew, Fantastic graffiti artist. What do they do? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, who are these guys? I, okay. I now, you, you guys really. are world-renowned artists. Yeah. And you started in, in the doing Bronx. what? Yeah. Painting subways here in New York City. 
But we moved on from that. We've moved yeah, on. we moved yeah, on, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you now paint trains around the world? <laughs> Actually, yeah, we have. <laughs> We've, what, uh, what, I'm really interested because so many of the, everybody in this book is accomplished. Not everybody is famous, most of them are, but they're all accomplished. What, what drove you? What, what made you achieve what you did coming from what at the time was, I think, a tough neighborhood? Yeah, I mean, uh, it was just the, the art was our passion. I mean, it was pretty much growing up in New York City in a time where there wasn't much in the Bronx. At that time, you know, right. the South Bronx had been burnt down. A lot of people had left the Bronx. And it was just, we always had a passion for art. And it was just that drive alone that, you know, brought us to where we are today. But it wasn't even a vision in that sense. It was just we, were, we believed in what we did so much that... <laughs> Didn't matter whether it was illegal, how we got our supplies. It was just. <laughs> you know, Regis, got Regis feels the same way. <laughs> no, I mean, like Bio was saying, we grew up in an era where uh, there weren't any art programs, and you know, uh, we didn't. We actually had a boys and girls club near where I grew up. I grew up on Longwood Avenue and Southern Boulevard. And, and <laughs> we're taking the train home together. <laughs> no, we can get lots of applause tonight just saying street names. Streets, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but um, I, in my neighborhood, we didn't have much, you know, uh, we didn't have any programs to, you know, to keep us busy. So I, I was always interested in art. So with the guys, and when we met, we actually, it's a funny story, we met in James Monroe High School. Um, yeah. High School. This is terrific. We, uh, we, I can't believe this. We, we met in a, it, of all places. I was a freshman, and we met in a major art class. And Isn't that we, great? Over 30, 32 years ago, something yeah. like that. BG, and, were, you, did, were, were you smitten with art from the, the beginning, from the very beginning? Yes, man. I remember, like, um, like, I saw my sister one time drawing, and ever since I never looked back. It How old was like were you then? Um, How old were you? I was like four years old when I actually started doing art, and I think that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Like growing up in the Bronx, you know, seeing the, the burning of the South Bronx, seeing everything. My mom always took time to buy me, you know, for Christmas, you know, she would buy me art supplies. Mm-hmm. And later she would buy me coloring by colors, you know, or, or anything that was dealing with any type of painting. So I think because of that reason, you know, I So your parents encouraged you? Huh? Your parents encouraged you? Yeah, my parents every day, man. My mother and my father really, like, went in colors. and, you know, a little whipping here and there, you know, because I was misbehaving. <laughs> but, you know, the so art was always there. Here's one of your uh, iconic pictures. Oh, not, no, That's nicer. Oh, no, okay. uh, what are you, a wise guy? I'll show you. <laughs> this is, uh, I can't, can you see, I don't know how far back you can see it. The, yeah. th- this is an award-winning uh, That's piece that. of work, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's located on Simpson Street and Westchester Avenue in the Bronx. Mm. And in, in each letter of the Bronx is a yeah. different scene from yeah, around the Bronx. You have botanical gardens. You have a black and white photo of kids playing stickball, which basically doesn't exist anymore. Bronx Zoo, you have the train, the, the hip-hop era, you know, with the B-boy, the turntable. So were you commissioned to do this, or did you just sneak up in the middle of the night? <laughs> no, no, we have permission. No, we have permission. Yeah, we got permission. <laughs> this but we weren't commissioned. This was just something that actually BG grew up in this neighborhood, so, uh, and we've always painted this wall. 
And we've been painting so many years that what? Whip, whip, And um, it was just something that we decided to do on our own. I mean, we we really we've been fortunate to travel around the world, and wherever we go, we always have that Bronx pride with us. So we was like, how can we never do anything at home? So this was what. Well, how old were you guys when when you met and formed this little group? Uh, we had to be teens, fifteen, fifteen, 15, yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah no, I was how, how did you I come up the... with the name Tatch Crew? T a t s c r u. It was. Uh, it originally started uh, T a t. It was a uh, top artistic talent, tough ass teens. <laughs> that, that kind Teenagers of teenage tough. tough. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> it was more of an acronym, and we would always oh, be creative an and yeah, and just yeah. change the, what it meant. Yeah, the S Are you allowed to say in public what the acronym is? No, <laughs> not now. I'm not here. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell me something, Regis. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to wake you. <laughs> This is what drove these guys. What the hell drove you? <laughs> what, what was your dream? What did you dream of as a kid? I, you know what? Honest to God, I had no dreams, no desires. <laughs> I really, I, I, I mean, we had Bronx Park a uh, uh, block away from my house. We'd go down there. They had two baseball fields, a softball field. I mean, they had it all. I mean, it was a great park when you think of it. Yeah, terrific. But okay, okay you you have a uh, you had a dream, and I bet it's still alive in another form about wanting to be Bing Crosby. Well, that's true. <laughs> at, at what I, age? I was did... getting to that, but uh... <laughs> oh, don't interrupt me. He, he, he likes to take 20, 30 minutes. <laughs> And that, Alan Alda. We're yeah. not we're not racing to the first commercial. No, I know, I know. <laughs> no, but uh, you asked me, did I have anything in my mind? Yeah. No, I, I really had nothing. But I'll tell you one thing: when I was either six or seven or eight years old, I began listening to the, the top radio station in town. Now, I believe it probably still is WNEW. So I'm listening to it, and from nine thirty to ten o'clock every night, they had Crosby singing. And we were in the middle of the Depression, the Great Depression. It was all through 30s and into the 40s. And uh, the songs that they were, that were writing and Crosby was delivering was to cheer you up. And uh, that's the way I felt after I heard him. I really felt terrific. Like wrap your troubles in dreams? Wrap your troubles in dreams. <laughs> Go ahead next. I, I didn't mean to make you sing it. <laughs> Thought you were looking for something. I don't know what the hell. <laughs> so anyway, but, and so I, I, I kind of fell in love with, with Bing Crosby. Uh, I thought he was great, and uh, he was the only one that uh, all through my my days at uh, A Lady of Solace on, Mar on Morris Park Avenue or Cardinal Hayes down at 150th Street, and even when uh, I went to Notre Dame, but before I could get away, my mother. My, my Italian mother would say to me, what is it? What do you want to be when you grow up? It's got to be something important. You want to be a lawyer? You want to be a doctor? What is it? How could I tell her I wanted to be a Bing Crosby? <laughs> <laughs> She'd kill herself. <laughs> so I said nothing. I said, Bob, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm going to Notre Dame. And when I, when I uh, see you there for the graduation, I'll know. I go to Notre Dame, it's all about football, it's this, it's that. 
I never gave it a second thought until three days before I graduated. <laughs> I said, my God, my mother's coming. I've got to say something. So I think, yeah, yeah, Bing Crosby. I'm going to just tell her, I want to be Bing Crosby. <laughs> like an idiot. So she comes with my father, and we walk across the campus, and I say, don't say a word to me, Mom, because I just, I'm going to tell you what I want. And I, and I had a guy in there, Gus, who, who had uh, rehearsed with me a couple of days. So uh, she comes in with my father, Gus, I cue him, and uh, I sing, uh, every time it rains, it rains, pennies from heaven, pennies from heaven. And my mother's looking at me saying, what, what, what did he say? <laughs> <laughs> and my father, who was a, a, a boxer and a marine, and uh, you know, he was making fists with his hands. <laughs> <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't a good night at all. <laughs> and so then I'm thinking, oh, for God's sakes, Bing Crosby's a, the giant. You know, forget it. I'm, I'm, Mom, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I got to go into the service now. We're at war. And so uh, we'll see. So I went into the service and uh, I, I met a couple of uh, Marine majors who were, who were you know, uh, single guys when they were fighting in the First World War, the, the Second World War, rather. This, this is the third world war we're in right now. <laughs> Tough guys. Anyway, uh, uh, I can't wait to say goodbye to them. And this last guy was, was, a, was a killer. So he looked at me and he said, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? <clears throat> I said, Major, uh, I don't know. You know, I, I see television, but I've got nothing to offer. I have not, never studied anything about it. I really. He said, don't you know you could have anything you want in this life? You've only got to want it bad enough. Uh. Now, do you want it? <laughs> I said, Major, you don't understand. I've got, there, there's nothing I know about it. They'll, they, they'll throw me right out. He said, do you get it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, all right, Major, I'll get it. I'll go. And I got in the car and I went up to Hollywood. And it's a long, long story. Well, we only have a day and a half. <laughs> <laughs> but here's, here's the story, wise guy. <laughs> I work, I start out, I, I'm, I'm delivering things around Hollywood. I'm doing all, all, all the stuff. And then finally I get a break, getting in front of the camera and doing things. And, and one night, Joey Bishop sees me. Joey Bishop has a chance Joey to Joey Bishop was a big comic at the time. That's right. Yeah. A, a big comic at the time, hung with Sinatra and all those guys. And uh, he wanted, he was going up against Johnny Carson at 11.30 at night. But he wanted someone besides himself alone, like uh, Johnny had uh, at Big Band. So he sees me on TV, calls me up. I go in, I have a meeting with him, and I get the job. Now we start the first day. And uh, the producer comes to me and says, go get Joey. He's very nervous. And take him for a walk. So I go see Joey Bishop and said, Joey, you want to go for a walk? Are you crazy? I've got a TV show. We've got to fight Johnny. We've got this. We've got that. No. I leave. Five minutes later, he's knocking on the door. Let's go. So we walked every day for three years up uh, Vine Street. Are you listening to me? No, no, that's... <laughs> I, I, was, I was just now, thinking, listen, that walk think... took about as long as this story. <laughs> it's a long story. 
Uh, we'll be done by maybe 12 o'clock. I'm okay. not sure. No, this is real quick. No, this is, you're getting to the good part. I know this story. <laughs> then, then it was nice seeing you. <laughs> tell them they never I'm heard it. Done I'm done the story. Yes. Every day we walked up Vine Street, you know, from Fountain Avenue, and then went over to, uh, what was it, the third... I forget the name of the street. We came back. It was a 45-minute walk every day. And I had to do all the talking because he didn't talk. <laughs> and one day, I had nothing to talk about. And I used to say, oh, my God, I'm going to go crazy with him. We started walking, walking. And I said to him, what did you want to be when you were a kid? He said, when I was 10 years old, on the, cor- on the street corners of Philadelphia, I would stand and tell jokes to people walking by, and they would fall down laughing. I wanted to be a comedian, and I became one. And he did, and a pretty good one. So we continued to walk, and he finally said something to me. He said, what about you? What did you want to be? So like an idiot, I say, well, you know, when I was a little kid, I used to listen to Big Crosby on the radio, and I, <laughs> I, 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 I just thought for a minute, you know, it'd be nice if I could be somebody like Bing Crosby. Uh, that ended that. <laughs> we finish our walk. Three months go by, and Bing Crosby's the guest on the show. And uh, here he is. There he is, right there. That's his wife. There's Bishop, and there's Regis. Oh, wow. So um, uh, I tell Joey that, and Bing's on the show, and they want Bing to, to sing. And so Bishop says to him, you know, uh, Regis would love to hear you sing, Bing uh, sings anything to us. So Bing Crosby sings a song to us, and it was just great. And so easy, you know. We go to a commercial break, we come out of it, Bishop says, so Regis, you, you, you wanted to be a Bing Crosby singer. You knew all of his songs, yeah? Pick out a song and sing it to him. <laughs> <laughs> it's like singing to these three guys, you know what I mean? <laughs> but uh, Crosby was there, the show was on, and I sang Pennies from Heaven. So, and Bing jumped in, boop, 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 boop. He was just kidding with me. He was just great. And, uh, and the next day, uh, I, got a commercial, I got a telegram from a uh, Mercury Records. Would you like to do uh, a, a record, an album? An album of well, Bing Crosby. <laughs> <laughs> so I took it to Joey Bishop. I said, look at this, Joey. Look, look, look. Bishop looked at it and said, somebody's playing a joke on you. <laughs> I think he was angry. And he, he ripped, tore it up. He, he tore, tore it up, up and threw it down. <laughs> no fan, don't listen to that. I said, maybe he's right. The next day, the guy calls up from Chicago. Well, are you going to do it or not? I said, yeah, I'll try it. I'll try it. And, and so that's how. And that's how you it. became Bing Crosby. That's <laughs> <laughs> Bravo. Very that's funny. a great, <laughs> great story. There's stories but, in the book, by the way. Yeah, that's, that's, it's a lovely story in the book. There, this, uh, guys, did, Bio, did you, did you do this? No, BG painted B- that. BG. Yeah, that's a painting that I created on a campus. This, I don't know if you can see it in the back. There's a kid leaping onto Three a kids. pile of Four mattresses. Four kids, yeah. And in the back is your tag, right? Yeah. Yes. BG? On the wall, right on the left this, hand side, yellow. This was—is this a picture of your life as a child playing in the? Yeah, that could be something like 
looking at the back of my window, you know, like when the era of in the 70s when people just started moving out. Because the of Bronx, the fire. The yeah, fire, yeah. you know, burning up the, up the South Bronx. And, you know, this only like I created, it took me like a year to create. Everything is all done with spray paint and paint markers. So you, that's spray why you see that, all the little paint dots markers. on it. Paint markers. Paint markers like yeah, paint markers yeah. and spray paint. Markers, yeah. So there's no, there's no paintbrush. It's all spray paint and just paint markers. Wow, you actually sprayed it out of the paint. You know, this is, this is you painting the yeah, Mona Lisa. Yeah, me without, with, with hair. With hair, yeah. That was <laughs> did, how do you do the Mona Lisa or the picture you did before that has so many gradations in color yes. with spray cans? Because they only have a few colors of spray, right? No, actually, in nowadays, they have like a total of like 10 different shades. Like if you need color, a blue, yeah. color. you have like a lighter blue to the dark blue to a dark red to a lighter red. But don't you need like for the Mona Lisa, I yeah. swear to God, I think he used more than 10 colors. Yeah, they used more than 10 colors. <laughs> 10 so, shades so. for each color. Yeah, so, oh, 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 so you have 10 shades for each color. For each color, yeah, so understand. it works very good. So, you know, first I start with the eyes and then I just work out with spray paint. So after like four, six hours later, you see what you see. So do you, do you change the, the, the tones at all by, by changing layering it, putting the one layer on top of another? Yeah, it would kind of like just add stuff onto it. Like you start and you off. see through each one? Yeah, well, we've been doing it for so long. We kind of uh, <clears throat> developed a technique where we can like build, like building layers, like sculpting sort of. Yeah. We start with just a black outline, then we start cutting away and leaving you know, the image, the desired image that we want. So. What you was know, the biggest uh, picture that you, that you made? The, the, the most money, let's put it that way. The most money? I mean, <laughs> uh, several projects. I mean, we've done project nationwide campaigns for different corporations. We've done no five-story buildings. different corporations, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've, we've done, done five-story buildings in Poland. We've been fortunate to travel and do yeah, work I mean, all over. Yeah, because of what we've done, and, and every now and then I always... I catch those moments where you have to step back and say, what, what the heck am I doing here? It's like, <laughs> you know, I was, I was part of this group from the Bronx that, you know, used to get chased away, you yeah. know, painting on handball courts. Now we're Board of Ed vendors. Or, <laughs> and we do, yeah, we do mural classes with kids. Yeah. And then we, we but we, we've been pretty fortunate enough um, to start traveling early on in 1984. I think was the first time we've went to England mm. and we spent a month out there and then since then we've been to places like you know uh, China um, everywhere Israel right? Morocco um, did you uh, Poland, sing any songs Germany? when you that helped a lot <laughs> you know what's so wonderful about this story that, the, that you were kids from the Bronx from a certain period and, and the people in your book Arlene cover each decade going yeah, back yeah. to the childhoods of people in their 90s to people now in their 20s. Right, and uh, you reminded me, there's someone who was interviewed, uh, his name is Dion DiMucci, and he was Dion and the Belmonts, oh, and yeah. he also grew up, he's old, much older than you guys, right. but he was a tough kid, 
And he described, you know, you reminded me when you were thrown out of places, he would climb over the fence to the zoo <laughs> in order to see the animals. He describes them five feet away from him. Yeah. No, elephants and rhinoceros and giraffe. He said, where else can you do that? <laughs> but it's very interesting. There's, there's a rough edge that a lot of people experience in the Bronx. And then there's a whole range of other things. An appreciation of beauty, of nature. And it's not hard to appreciate nature. People are surprised that a, a how much of the Bronx is parkland. Yeah, 25% yeah, of the yeah. Bronx is parkland. Is that right? More parkland than in any of the boroughs. Wow. And we grew up, as you say, near the Bronx Park. Right. I used to, in May, every May, this was a, a seasonal thing, a light bulb went off in my head. May is when the violets come out. And I would go down to the Bronx River, to the banks of the Bronx mm -hmm. River, and pick little bouquets of violets and bring them home, put them in a jelly, jelly jar vase that we had. And there, there are so many, there's a tremendous variety in just the geography of the, the Bronx, along with the, the neighborhoods, which started out as little villages historically. Yeah. But I was, I was struck, guys, by your stories in the book of being creative, having to be creative in, your, in the play that you engaged in as kids, because yeah. you didn't have the toys, yeah, I mean, you didn't I mean, have the I, electronics that they have now and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, for us, I just to play with rocks. I think what, what, what's the, the comparison from the way we grew up and the way the kids grew up nowadays is like, we can use our imagination. And, and I believe everyone growing up in, in neighborhoods like ours, you know, had to use your imagination to, you know, be creative with what you have. I mean, we would start out the morning with everyone chipping in for a Spalding. And you know how many games we would play throughout the day just for the Spalding? You did everything from stickball to pitching in sure. to off the stoop. And, you know, you, you invented games. It was yeah, just well, what about until the somebody game? roofed the ball, then everybody had to go. Then it was over. You played, <laughs> games. you played games that uh, I'd never heard of, like jumping from one elevator to another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just that, describe that was, that. that was a lot of that. That was bio. I mean, yeah, we yeah. used to open up the elevator shaft and ride on top of the elevator all day and get bored and jump on top wow, of the elevator. Wow, wow. <laughs> believe this? That's what it was. Jeez, that a, sounds like a, a lot of fun. A living miracle. Yeah. He's, he's alive to tell the tale. Yeah, I mean, I somebody, mean, did anybody get hurt doing that? No, no. I mean, it was just so common to us it was like you knew and he's all you also played in abandoned buildings yeah. too, yes right? like so like that out. was like my recreation day you know saying like you know okay mom see you later and then we all meet up in like building 923 <laughs> simpson street and that would be a hideout you know we would jump <laughs> up the windows into mattresses yeah. so it was like Entertainment and didn't you fall accidentally out of a window? I fell out. Yeah. Ah, it was an abandoned building. I grabbed the frame and the whole frame came out. Oh my God! I just landed in a pile of rubble. Thank God there was rubble there. You know, and a little mattress too. The little How did I'd love this in the in the in Arlene's book, Just Kids from the Bronx? You tell about how you knew there was going to be a fire in the building. How would you know? Mm. Fire? Yeah. 
Oh when man! You, when you lit the match, people will be screaming. <laughs> <laughs> the match will be on the floor and shut the hell the fire. Nicer, nicer. You well, I remember. It in yeah, story. we had we had um like I had a friend that lived across the street, and we would go visit them, and half of his hallway was boarded up because there was half the building caught fire. Mm-hmm. So and you would hear. Like there would be nights you're at home watching television, and it's you would hear the the uh, fire trucks coming from far away, and everyone's out the window, and it was just like it was just that era. It was just there was no money in the city. Um, the everyone was abandoning, you know, the, their properties and burning them out just for the uh, insurance money and the families that were left there. And you know, for us, like even in our building. Like the actual building was like a little community within itself. Everyone had open doors. Everyone, they would send you to neighbor's house to get sugar, <laughs> to go get, you know, right? Mm-hmm. So it was like a little community. But once um, the, the property owners started like leaving and abandoning these properties and figured out that it was more, it was worth more burnt out for the insurance money than it was actually, you know, maintain. getting money to maintain. So when they were, when the landlord was ready to burn down his building to get the insurance money, it, it was they do and and I and I read one of you I forget which one of you said in the book that when the landlord stopped collecting rent you knew the yeah that was a, that was a sure sign it was like <laughs> he stopped coming around usually that was the sign people were like hey have you seen the landlord I haven't seen the landlord I don't know no. should we move no. you know it starts off like that it's like but, but it's, then, then the Bronx has lately people remembered that period of the Bronx when. It was burning, and the, the the phrase "the Bronx is burning" and Fort Apache, the Bronx, was they they were sort of imprinted on people's minds right. around the world still to this yeah. day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I don't think people realize that it hasn't been like that for a long time. Oh, do, you know, yeah. do you know how difficult it is to find an abandoned building? In the <laughs> <laughs> we actually were asked, do you know where there are any abandoned buildings? And we were like, oh. <laughs> Not only that, I mean, we have to remember, the South Bronx is one geographic <clears throat> portion of the Bronx. So even in the very bad times, yeah. there were still very viable, stable neighborhoods. Yes. And uh, now when you go through the South Bronx, it's entirely different. Yeah. And the other neighborhoods are, are uh, interesting. I, f- I find them fascinating. I found something interesting in the book that I don't know if you'd agree with. It seemed to me that in the beginning, and uh, decades and decades ago, uh, a number of people wanted to get out of the Bronx. Their dream was to make it big someplace else. And by the end of the book, you have people in their 20s staying in the Bronx happily, gladly, that yeah. it's drawing them, like the kid uh, who, who you end the book on. Yeah, Eric Seidler. Uh, 23, he's 24 now, a naturalist, herpetologist, went to the Bronx High School of Science and uh, found out that the best place to go for uh, what he was interested in, in college, for college was in Kansas. So he went to Kansas and unfortunately was bitten by a rattlesnake in the artery there. And uh, it was very serious. They helicoptered him to the nearest big hospital where they could try to save him. And on the way there, uh, the professor, who also happened to have been from the Bronx, that was an odd coincidence, said to him, 
you know, Eric, kids from the Bronx don't go to Kansas to die. <laughs> so, so he, he didn't die. <laughs> and in the hospital, he was a major celebrity. Oh. And the nurses would come to him, congratulations. But it had nothing to do with the fact that he lived. It was because of his Bronx accent. They, <laughs> they would hand the phone to him, would you speak? to my brother. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so, and Eric, by the way, he discovered a huge uh, population of snapping turtles in the Bronx River and uh, labeled them, tagged them, and contributed to the science. And when he was a kid, he thought, could I work in Africa, South America? And after he, he uh, did this uh, work in the Bronx, he thought, no, this is where I should be. This is where the work is. Uh, so I thought that was very interesting that uh, he, he knows that there are places in the Bronx for naturalists to, uh, to explore and mm -hmm. discover and contribute. The Bronx has gone through so many uh, changes that you reflect in the childhoods of the people, just, just focusing on their childhoods. I love what happens after the war, because during the war, all the people, all the companies that made cars were making tanks and trucks for the yeah. war effort. Mm -hmm. So they weren't making many cars. Yeah. So the kids had the streets to themselves. There weren't many cars in the yeah. streets, right? Yeah, we all played, even I as a girl played in the street or on the sidewalk. I mean, there's, the, you went out of your house for the most part. I mean, people in Riverdale claim they didn't go out in the street. As a matter of fact, we have a mutual friend who, when he moved to Riverdale as a young, as a young man, thought he was moving to Westchester. <laughs> when he found out it was the Bronx, he moved out. <laughs> <laughs> So the, the um, yep. just, I, would, I was yeah, aiming so the, toward that other uh, idea, which I'd lost completely. No, that's okay, because I'm just reminded of, of Mary Higgins Clark, oh. who is a little older than I am. And uh, Mary Higgins Clark said the best thing. She said, people just don't get it. There are three places in the world with a the in front of it. Okay. <laughs> the Vatican... Yep. The Hague yeah. and the Bronx. <laughs> I wonder how that started, the Bronx. You know. The Bronx. Well, okay, I'll tell you what I know, but it may not be true. <laughs> In 1639, there was a Scandinavian who got a charter from the Dutch East or West Indies Company. His name was Jonas Bronck. B-R-O-N-C-K. Uh -huh. And he farmed 500 acres or so in the Mott Haven section. Right. When you went to visit Mr. Bronk and his family, you were going to see the Bronx. <laughs> oh, I see. And it stuck. That's one of the, that's one of the yeah. explanations wow. that I've had. But uh, uh, it may or may not be true. I don't know. Well, what are you guys going to do next? <laughs> Why don't you tell us now? Is there a something coming up? 
Do you have a project? You, you paint every day, right? Pretty much, Pretty yeah. Much, yeah. And are these mostly commissions? A lot of it is, yeah. yeah. I mean, we've... <clears> so what, would somebody commission you to paint their wall or what? Wall. Side of the building? It, 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 different projects, it varies. Yeah, they vary. Um, we just finished doing uh, a building down on 18th Street, the uh, elevator landings. Then we did a pediatric center last yeah. night, yeah. like a kid's ward. So with small images that make it What would you put on the wall for the kids? Because uh, <laughs> I might, I might go to images. Well, we did images of kids playing, like playing in the parks and, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. so. Good for you. Stuff that's, because what it is is in a lot of, even in the school systems, um, what people have been realizing is that for so many years, these buildings look like, you know, they look so institutionalized. It's so cold. And like even the hospitals, they're just so one colored. And so they invite artists like us to come uh, over and, you know, put some life into it and some color. When you go to another country, do you lecture? Do you teach teach art? What do you do? We do a little bit of everything. We've done lectures, murals. We've uh, exhibitions. I mean, it, it, each project varies. I mean, from Morocco, we were invited to a, a city called Azemor. And pretty much were given two, three thousand spray cans and set loose in the city. Mm. And they were like, any wall that's white, you can paint. <laughs> no kidding. And we're like, we're looking and around. And it's at one of the oldest historic looking buildings, this, and we this don't like want to paint on anything. It's like an old city with walls, with the old walls around like it. The and they were tired of seeing yeah, it. Yeah, they were like, hey, so what, you what want? color I was like, did you use? I don't want to touch yeah. nothing. Everything here. It looks available. good. <laughs> No, it was just because they wanted light. to bring tourism to the, because it's so close yeah. to Casablanca, it's maybe an hour and a half, so they wanted to encourage people to visit mm. this particular city, so they brought a bunch of international artists. You, you know what, what I was struck with so much, because you grew up at a time when the Bronx was going through hard times, and yet you found beauty in that period and a way to express the beauty of art and to reach the public. That was what was so amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah. when we when we started, we kind of did it for ourselves. We did it was, it started off as a subculture here in New York City, and it's kind of like it was, in a time where we were going through uh, garbage strikes and and subway strikes, and you know, so it was kind of like we were left to run through the subway systems without. I mean, we didn't have the police force that you have nowadays, and there's you know, <laughs> we got away with a lot. So <laughs> we were younger. So what ended up happening was because of that, I guess, you know, it, we found something to kind of like, you know, uh, have for ourselves. And we, it was our thing. And it now, was, some yeah. people, I'm sure at the time, and probably still would think that you were defacing property, you were doing something illegal. Only Regis thinks that. <laughs> he told us backstage. Did Regis mention that backstage? I think backstage? you're on yeah. to something. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it's, it's really, if you don't mind, bringing out your feelings about that, right. because you were doing something you weren't supposed to be doing, and yet it changed your lives in a positive way. Yes, it did, because I remember when after we was doing like work for Coca-Cola and everything else, I remember, you know, saying to these guys, we all three was talking, you know, let's start this business. You know, a graffiti business. Who wants to start a graffiti business? We didn't even know which way, like how to work it or how to start it. So I remember going and, you know, talking to my mom because I was working as an engineer and telling her, I'm gonna leave my job and I'm gonna be a, a graffiti artist. 
and shit. And, yeah, and then each all, one of us went to each went house. That, yeah, and then next thing you know, it's like, you know, like, you know, we didn't know, we didn't know like which way to go, Talk about like who, who to see, you know, who to follow. <laughs> like it was nobody and really doing graffiti company. So it was hard. So, you know, the first thing is I remember, we, you know, let's get some walls. And we were knocking people's, you know, um, at, like um, landlords and buildings. And they would look at us and we turn look, and we would be carrying the cans on in our hands. We want to paint your wall, and they'd be like, oh, no, 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 not here. You know, we don't want it. And we like, so after a while, it so took, it back took at a night. while. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, so I know you want it. <laughs> I think what ended up happening was there's, there's, a, there's a changing of the guards that kind of happened in the uh, early 90s. And it was people before then that didn't have an open mind to like this new art form, um, they kind of already made up their mind that no, they don't like it, period. And then, but with the changing of the guard, the people that were now in positions to employ our heads of art departments, um, principals, principals, like people that, that can actually employ art are looking and either grew up with this art form and are looking in their past and saying, wow, I saw some nice stuff. You know, I would, wouldn't mind having that you know, as part of this project. And it's people like that that throughout the years have been, Help you know, reaching out to us. And, and you, were doing, you were doing art in spite of the fact that... It, right, it, those you, people were, were saying art it sometimes in places where they didn't ask for it, but right. you were still doing art. Yeah. But you weren't, you weren't out do, doing drugs or robbing people right. or no. killing people as some no. of your friends might have been doing. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. Uh, I interviewed... My focus was on... Uh, age groups, basically, going through that arc of, you know, decades. And as it turned out, after the fact, I realized there were five or six artists who are represent their stories represented in the book. Pat's crew, Milton Glaser, Danny Halbin, Jules Pfeiffer, Barbara Nessam, Myra Kalman. It's an amazing group of people, all with a different version of their art. But I'm especially taken with something that Milton Glaser said about his upbringing that I thought I'd like to read. Oh, good. Yeah. It is a little... Okay. Give me a a moment to change glasses. It just went past my page. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know, he's a a wonderful graphic designer. Mm -hmm. Um, He did the the famous I Heart New York. Yeah. 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 And he describes his nuclear, his basic family and what it was like to him. My mother never ate with the rest of the family. My father, who had this dry cleaning store, would come home from work at about a quarter after eight at night. My sister, who at that point was still in grade school, would come home early and have something to eat. Everybody ate by themselves. (laughs) Every once in a while, two would eat at the same time, but my mother was never seen eating. During the day, she was taking food from somewhere. It was very strange. My mother also cooked spaghetti in a very specific way. 
she would boil it for an hour <laughs> until it had gotten gelatinous and lost its identity. Oh my God. She tossed Velveeta cheese in before the water had boiled off. <laughs> then she would demold it from the pot because it had been reduced to a kind of pudding. <laughs> it was like the Dome of St. Peter's. <laughs> and after that, she'd slice it and fry it in chicken fat. <laughs> in my teenage years, I went to an Italian restaurant for the first time. I asked for spaghetti. And when they brought me a plate of spaghetti, I said, no, no, I want spaghetti. <laughs> spaghetti! Oh. Only in the Bronx, huh? Only in the Bronx. Only in the Bronx. <laughs> I, I love the, the way people made their way in the Bronx, one way or another. David Yarnell. Oh, David. <laughs> this is... Uh, also a, a close friend of ours who was brought up in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. David Yarnell uh, became a lawyer and then a documentary filmmaker. So David, uh, also a little older than I am, so we're talking, you know, a long time ago. In the 1940s, he was a teenager. Mm -hmm. And uh, he decided the Bronx was too quiet for him. So he wanted some action. Nice. And he didn't do what you guys did. But he, he, his version of, of doing something for fun and to uh, exercise his creativity was to grow pot oh, yes. in the Bronx Park. Nice. Now, <laughs> we're talking a public park. So they staked out, I don't know, an area hidden by some bushes they used the water fountain that the kids used <laughs> to water this crop. And then he, and he said they were terrible farmers. Two-thirds died. <laughs> but at the end of the summer, they harvested this crop of pot. <laughs> and he put buds into pickle jars, empty pickle jars, and hid them under his bed. But on Friday, his mother cleaned. He had to move the pickle jars. <laughs> at the end of the summer, I asked where, who used this stuff? He said, oh, the jazz musicians in the Catskills. Oh. So, so he, he sold, he got something like $200, which he split with his friend, and he said, was it worth the trouble or the anxiety? He hit the books, right? Uh, just like that. Do you go back to the Bronx, Regis? Uh, yeah, I do, as a matter of fact. You, to your old There's school? I have a friend back there, Freakin' Finelli. <laughs> Say his name again. His name is Freaking Fanelli. Uh, he's been a friend of mine since we were young, young kids. And uh, he's still there, still living in the same house. Uh, he used to come to my show and uh, see me. Uh, unfortunately, his wife just died. But uh, we, we go to a uh, bakery there, right on Morris Park Avenue, and meet there and... Uh, you know, talk about the old days and all that. How did he get the name Freakin' Fanelli? <laughs> I understand Freakin'. How did he get Fanelli? <laughs> Pretty good, you know? <laughs> <laughs> You're not bad for an actor. 
<laughs> no, Finelli was his real name, but I, I just thought it was funny. I gave it to him. Well, you, you, I didn't know you had a, um, a mother who was Italian. Mother was Italian, father was Irish, and uh, the Italian family won the whole thing. <laughs> they would come down from Tuckahoe or wherever every Sunday, and we would have dinner right there. In the, in the, and, and you had a form, formidable aunt. What was her name, Aunt what? Uh, well, I had a couple. Victoria? Was oh, it? well, Victoria. Who was, was Victoria? Was my great, great aunt. Oh. Who, who owned the building. Uh. And every night at 9 o'clock, she would go. I could hear her coming down the stairs from, from her from her apartment upstairs. And then you'd hear the door open to the, to the cellar, and you'd hear her go down those stairs to turn the heat off. <laughs> I don't know. I think my, uh, it's, in the, it's, in a, it's in your book, I think. Yes. Uh, somebody was questioning uh, my father. Uh, but what do you think about her? Wouldn't you be a little... Uh, he said, uh, what did he say? Where's the book? Okay. <laughs> well, basically, he said, aren't you afraid of, you know... Yeah, of, uh, her going the, down into you, the dark you said to him, dark stairs? Yeah. Aren't, uh, isn't she afraid of going down the right, dark stairs? Right, exactly. And the answer was, basically... If I was a guy down in the basement, I'd be afraid of who was coming down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> she was a tough woman. Oh, yeah, she really was. Did, did you learn Italian from that side of the family? Caffia Beatriz. Whoa. What, what does does anybody here know what that means? What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get along with these guys. <laughs> did, did you all have uh, friends from different ethnic groups, or did you stay in your own group? Because you have several groups represented here. No, no we, we, I mean, for us, we grew up in an era where hip-hop started. So it's kind of yeah. like, you know, we, we were in the projects. We were in the, like, we were wherever the music was, wherever the, because this art form kind of also became the backdrop to a lot of what was going on in, like, the hip-hop scene. So, yeah. like, behind the DJs and the lead jackets for the MCs. And mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was like this whole other. And for us, it, was, it wasn't even about the money that we were making doing a lot of that stuff. It was the paint that was left over so we can go out and paint. So it was like, you know, but uh, it, it's, you know, we, we, it's funny, like, I'm the first American born in my family. So I always say this because it's true. It's like, as I was going to school as a kid and reading and learning to read, uh, I could see my mother over, like, <laughs> learning with me. I'm like, oh. So it was like, you know, we all learned in the house. Sure. So it took me a long time to, to realize that you don't spell Yankees with a J. <laughs> my, mother, my mother always said the New York Yankees. I was like, okay, the Yankees. So... What about you, Regis? Did you, did you mix different, like, uh, did you know the Jews in the neighborhood and... Knew them all. Yeah. <laughs> I was, uh, I used to deliver the Bronx. What was the Bronx Home News was the newspaper? That's what the it was. Bronx, Bronx Home, Home News. News. Yeah. Right up Kruger Avenue to Pelham Parkway and then around to uh, <laughs> the other buildings that faced. You should have read a map talk. <laughs> what? I, I wasn't listening. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Go, no, do go, go right ahead. 
<laughs> no, I just told them the whole story. They loved it. <laughs> so go ahead. So go ahead. Uh, I, oh, and so, but then the guy switched me to, uh, I can't remember, what we would call inside the, the Bronx, way up north uh, of where we lived. But anyway, I would go up there, and one day, uh, uh, the great, uh, the great uh, boxer, Jake Lamada. Jake Lamada was there. He was uh, in a, a playing stickball with the kids. Really? Mm. And so he saw me, and he uh, he said he wanted he wanted the post. Said I have the post. I was going to put it in his door, you know, at home. But he wanted to see it right away, so I gave it to him, and that was the only, uh, you know, thing I ever got from anybody. Mm. Twenty. He gave me a quarter. <laughs> and I took it. <laughs> and I still have it. <laughs> you know, Jake LaMotta reminds me, Mary Higgins Clark was saying, you know, she's a big Bronx booster person. And she said uh, in, our, in her neighborhood, uh, basically Jake LaMotta lived there. Mm -hmm. And she uh, mentioned a few authors. And she mentioned, and then there was this guy, he said he was a counterfeiter. And we always wondered why his son had such a snappy roadster. And then we found out that he was on the 10 most wanted list. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. All so kinds the, of people down the street. Right. <laughs> well, here's the thing. This is a wonderful, alive house because you're, you're so obviously so in love with the Bronx as everybody on stage is. This... <laughs> This would be, and as I am, and so this would be a great time for you to join the conversation with any questions you have or comments or, uh, there, there are going to be some microphones out there and we have people in other locations around the country uh, who have uh, called in questions. So we'll be getting questions from all over. Do we have mics ready? Oh, there they are coming out in the, in the uh, aisle. Well, they're doing that. I, I just okay. wanted to say that. It's been very touching because people have come up to me, not from the Bronx, and, and my hope is that this continues because in every one of those stories of childhood, one can recognize their own self yeah. in the striving and, and get inspiration from, yeah, from reading right. the stories of these yeah, 64 I, yeah, I, beautiful I and interesting people, people from the Bronx. Yeah, it's a great I idea you had. It really was. <laughs> Thank you. I know people who are, as you say, are not from the Bronx, but recognize growing up what the experience is mm -hmm. and how people in the Bronx over and over again in this book see the importance of mentors, of teachers, mm -hmm. parents, who boosted them, picked up their spirits when they were low, encouraged them. And that's true for anybody in Kansas or any place else. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Right. Only you get this special Bronx flavor of it, which is a delicious <laughs> thing to see. It's just great. We got a mic set up, right? Anybody want to join in over here? Oh, I can't see. I'm sorry. Hi. Hi. Oh, can you go to a mic? I know you're close to us, but the <clears throat> folks in the back need to hear. Thank you. People used to know I was from the Bronx when I said 200 Tidy Tight Street on the tight floor with the picture hanging on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you very much. <laughs>
that reminds me, Alan. In um, uh, uh, Rick, oh, I forgot Rick Myrowitz is a, uh, is another artist illustrator in the book. Excuse me for if I didn't mention him before, but Rick has a, a funny um, conversation that he had with, he had a funny conversation with his father when he said, Dad, what's the difference between a Brooklyn accent and a Bronx accent? And the father said, well, in Brooklyn, they say, I'm gonna moiter the bum. Huh? And in the Bronx, they say, I'm gonna mutter the bum. <laughs> said, Either way, the bum's dead. He's gonna go. <laughs> oh, there's a guy right over there. Oh, good, thank you. Um, I wanted to ask the, uh, the artists, um, I, I was looking at those pictures and I see such incredible detail. And I'm wondering, how do you do that with spray cans? Uh, if I told you, I have to... What? <laughs> You'd have to kill me? <laughs> no, it, uh, it, it actually, um, we use different size caps. Nowadays, uh, you know, there's special paint and special caps that you can order overseas and you buy them in bulk, and so you have really thin caps. But again, it's just technique and I guess... And a lot of years of practice, like, you know, again, this art form, there's no school for it. Yeah. So you really, really have to pick up a can and practice every day. So I've been practicing close to 35 years. And one of these days he's going to get it right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so the more you practice, the more you yeah, get details. Definitely. Like, you know, like everything else, you know. You, if you love what you do, you know, you enjoy it. And that's, that kept me away from, you know, like drugs, kept me away from, from robbing somebody for money. You know, during that time, I just went into the subways with these guys, and we just painted the subways every day. <laughs> and it was no stopping us. We hopped on a token buoy. <laughs> we did it all. <laughs> yes, sir. Good evening. First of all, I want to just uh, say, Mr. Alda, what a fan I am of yours and how I've enjoyed your work over the decades. It's, it's just been wonderful. Probably talking to you. Probably is. <laughs> Thank you, sir. And, <laughs> as well, Mr. Feldman, absolutely. Right. Uh, my question is this. Uh, growing up in the Bronx decades ago, the, at that time, those, the boroughs were somewhat self-contained. And I know a lot of people, like myself, grew up in the Bronx. We didn't know, I mean, I would go into Manhattan, but didn't do a whole lot there. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you would divulge uh, Mr. and Mrs. Aldo, how you met, since, uh, Mr. Aldo, you indicated that you grew up in Manhattan, and uh, if you grew up in the Bronx, how in the world did you, uh, did you meet? We met through music. I, I was invited to somebody's apartment in Manhattan by a, a mutual friend of ours, and I came into the room, and there was Arlene playing the Mozart clarinet quintet. Excuse me. So us. beautifully. I mean, it was it took my breath clarinet, away. Huh? She, she played <laughs> clarinet. <laughs> Still plays clarinet beautifully. And I was very shy, and I didn't, I didn't say anything more than, you were good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember that. She much. doesn't remember that. I made a real impression. <laughs> so a couple of months later, we were invited back by the same woman. Uh, to a dinner with about 12 people. And I noticed at dinner, she was laughing at my jokes. Arlene was laughing at my jokes and I was really fascinated with her. And the, I didn't know quite what to do about it, you know? So the woman who had invited us had made a rum cake 
and she had set it up on top of a refrigerator in the kitchen to cool, but the refrigerator shook while it worked. So the rum cake slowly made its way to the edge of the refrigerator and fell on the floor and everybody heard splat. And Arlene and I were the only two people to take spoons and eat it off the floor. <laughs> wow. You know, if you eat cake off the floor together, that's it for life. <laughs> they, got these, they got these websites that try to match people up with questionnaires. <laughs> Doesn't work, huh? All you do is you throw a cake on the floor, see who goes for it. <laughs> Very good. Aubrey, thank you. I was back at Bronx, back at Bronx Science for my 50th reunion. Ah, wow. Good. And, and looked at the wall and pictures of eight Nobel Prize winners. Right. Mm. How many of them actually grew up in the Bronx? Did you know that? Did you interview any of them? Because okay. I know kids came um, from all over the city through an entrance right, exam to get into right. Bronx Science. Unfortunately, none of those <laughs> Nobel Prize winners <laughs> but, but, are, uh, are in the book. But there is there are two great scientists in the book. One is Mildred Dresselhaus, who's the Kavli uh, Prize winner. Uh, expert in the world on nanocarbon molecules. Uh, the other is Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's this great astrophysicist, head of the uh, planetarium, the American uh, Natural History M Museum. He went to the Bronx High School of Science. Mildred went to uh, Hunter. She went to Hunter College. <laughs> As did I. Um, yeah, so it's, it's our loss. I don't know how many of the Nobel Prize winners were actually Bronxites. Um, but unfortunately, that's for maybe the second book about yeah. the Bronx. <laughs> oh, here we go. Any thank other you. questions? Yeah, first of all, I'd like to thank all of you for being here tonight and reminiscing with us. Um, and I have a request, but before I get there, before I get there, just I want to put it in context. My request has to do with what your memories are in the 50s in the Bronx. Because I grew up in Hunts Point in Lafayette in what Alan called Fort Apache, and it was Fort Apache. It was before the produce markets came in. There were gang wars. I personally was a victim of a holdup, and if the guy had a nervous trigger finger, I wouldn't be here today. But I went to Morris High School. I followed Colin Powell by a number of years. It was a wonderful time in the Bronx. It was multicultural. Uh -huh. The people I hung out with, there was an African-American, a Puerto Rican, an uh, Irishman, two Jews, and me, a hybrid, a Jewapi, <laughs> because my dad is Sicilian and Italian, my mother Romanian Jew. <laughs> but we had a great time. We played stickball yeah. and scoopball mm, yeah, yeah. and box yeah. baseball and Johnny on the Pony, yeah. Scully in the street, all of that thing. So my question is, a request is if anybody up there can remember the 50s and talk a little bit about that. I had friends on Rochambeau Avenue of Marshallou Parkway, um, but that was paradise to us because where I grew up, it was a hellhole. Yet having said that, I had a wonderful childhood. I spent many times, many days in Yankee Stadium. I was privileged to have a tryout with the New York Yankees when I was a kid in 1961, and I played in Yankee Stadium. Mm. Those are wonderful memories. Wow. But I'd like to hear if any of you have something to tell us about the 50s prior to going up in smoke, prior to <laughs> becoming Little House on the Prairie, if you remember that, 41st <laughs> Precinct and Simpson Street, Intervale, Kelly Street, Elder Avenue. It was, it was a terrible, terrible area. 
but we got through it because we persevered. So can you give us some insight into the okay. 50s? Okay, as, as far as I recall, a lot depended. It's not just the decade when you say the 50s. It really depended on the, on the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. For instance, Chaz Palminteri right. uh, would probably echo your, mm -hmm. your sentiments exactly. Yeah, I know he he was. was in the Bel Belmont section. Right. And, and basically, he witnessed a murder. Uh, he was 11 years old, and he wrote about it. He did a play about it, and he wrote about it, did the movie A Bronx Tale. That's a true story. But when people say to him, weren't you traumatized by witnessing this murder? He says, no. I mean, I, I, I saw it. I witnessed it. But people don't understand. Uh, the neighborhood and the families were so close that uh, they overrode everything. So he said, uh, then <laughs> he did go on to say that, however, a psychiatrist did tell him, well, it probably did affect you because, <laughs> look, you did a play about it, you, <laughs> you did a movie about it, and you think about it all the time. <laughs> So, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know any more than that, but that the survival instinct is enormous. And from what you say with the kids playing together, that the, you, you manage somehow to get through that time. You know, people are always asking Arlene, what was it about the Bronx that made all these people have such vibrant lives? Is there anything in your life that you remember that couldn't have happened anyplace else but the Bronx that made you who you were? Survival. 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 So you were tested by the times you lived through. In a way, I mean, um, when you're 16 years old and you're a victim of a gun, of robbery with two guys with guns, I was a clerk in a pharmacy, they tied me up hand and foot on the floor with a gun at my head. Uh. And two people came in in the middle of the road. Two customers came in in the middle of the holdup. And I prayed. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed to the Italian side and the Jewish side. <laughs> I, was, I was not too particular at the time. Um, and as I said before, if he had an itchy trigger finger, I would not be here today. And I'm mm. 72 years old, and I'm happy to say yeah, I survived and a lot of my friends survived because we did persevere. Yeah. And it yeah. was a community. Yeah. And yeah. the group that, that we grew up with, we played sports together, as I mentioned. We had no grass fields. We played stickball in the streets. And when the cops came around, we threw the bats under the car so they would take the bats away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the that's bats. what I remember. And it was a, still, having said those negatives, it was a wonderful childhood. Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, know. even though, like, for, for me, I remember there, there was a time where if you look back, our block had everything on it because every parent parented everyone else's kids. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of, you know, if someone saw you doing something, they went and they dragged you to your mother. And your mother was like, hit them next time. And you're standing there like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but the thing was, it was a community looked out for each other's kids. And, yeah. and you know, it, we lost a lot of that with, with what's going on now. But yeah. back then, I mean, that kind of like made us who we are because there's a sense of, you know, you knew the store owner. You knew the workers in the store. You knew the guy in the meat market. You knew, you know, like they would send you to, the, to we had a FECO. And I remember going to, 
to measure rice, cups of rice in this little scale. And, you know, we would have to go get the beans for the coffee, you know, grounded. And, you know, this was all things that it was normal every day, but you knew everyone. Arlene, did did any of this, was it? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you. There was uh, a lot of um, feeling of community. People would sit out on the sidewalk to get cool in the evening and talk and gossip and they'd keep track of one another. It was like going to the village well. Yeah. But then that that changed at a certain point. Well, you know, going out in the street was not just uh, an activity. It was a social gathering because... Everyone met everyone else. Everyone knew everyone else. And a lot of information and gossip was exchanged. And this was a real, a real community bond. So when did that when, change? When that, when, it, oddly enough, when air conditioning came in <laughs> and people stayed in their houses mm. and not outside, oh and when television <clears throat> came in and people gathered around the television set, that community bond was was a, a different one. And isn't it true that been. up until television came in, somebody would open up a window and put a radio in the yeah. windowsill? Yeah. yeah, I mean, there were all yeah. kinds of hear, To hear community. a boxing match or something like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 the whole community. Audience. You know, you asked about the Bronx, and it, it is a tough question to answer uh, because there's another borough with a B that claims certain things. <laughs> Maybe it's the B part of it. (laughs) However, the Bronx always, or a lot of the time, had a winning team. And everyone identified. You're absolutely (laughs) right. We're Yankees. We're winners, you know. Brooklyn loved its team as much as you did. Yeah, but they left at a certain time. They left. (laughs) Uh, The Yankees are still in the Bronx. That's it. So oh, you're talking about the Yankees. I thought they said janky. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> Thank you. This yes. previous discussion practically answered my question, but I did want to point out that the stories that you tell, the people in the Bronx tell, are all so benign and so warm and so seen through rose-colored glasses. And I'm wondering in part whether they are the rose-colored glasses of the people or of Arlene Alda. But also, I wanted to contrast it with Brooklyn, where I come from, (laughs) that we had the same uh, stock of people who came from the Holocaust and from miseries of one sort or another. And I felt there was much more rancor and less happy memories uh. than of the Bronx. And I wondered why that was. The Bronx now that's, tap water. That's interesting. Um, I'm, I, not being a sociologist or a journalist or a historian, I, I can only go by my gut feeling in this. But I know that whenever I meet someone from the Bronx, there's a camaraderie that is extraordinary. Uh, it's it's, uh, it's I couldn't get over it. once we met Jonas Salk a, a couple of decades ago and he and Arlene 
just having met, went off in a corner and talked for an hour about streets in the Bronx. <laughs> Subway stops and... The... Well, you know, I couldn't talk about medicines. So... <laughs> <laughs> we found common ground in the, in the IRT subway. But by the way, by the way, there are some dark stories in the book yeah. and that yeah. leaven the nostalgia. It's not all nostalgia. Yeah, some it's of it is not, very it's tough. It's not a book of nostalgia. It, it is a book of remembering, but it's also a book of truth. Yeah. And that truth is sometimes dark. And in terms of Brooklyn, I, I don't know about the rancor uh, so much. Um, our friends from Brooklyn seem pretty jolly to me. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Here's some, thank must, you. I'm sorry. I must tell you that I'm old and I grew up a lot of years ago. But there used to be a program on Saturday mornings for the girls, for the children, and it was called Brooklyn versus the Bronx. Oh, and they wow. would have two girls every Saturday morning at 10 o'clock arguing pros and cons of Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's something. Right. I never heard of that. Never heard never of heard that. Of that's very yeah, interesting. Very old. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. But you Thank have a you. good memory. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, I'm from Manhattan, and I was a Giant fan. <laughs> now a Mets fan. Uh, but I especially urge, this is a fantastic book, and I urge people especially who are not from the Bronx to read this book. I learned a great deal about it. And my question to the author is the following. What surprised you most in writing this book? You had certain impressions of the Bronx as you went into this book. How did you come out from the book? What really startled you? Um... There were startling individual stories. Uh, the darker ones were startling. Also, the, f the funny ones were startling. What about Regis? Uh, <laughs> Re Regis was <laughs> the most I'm surprising. But e even when, um, you know, when I heard Milton Glaser's story, it went on from his family to his uh, going to music and art high school. And ultimately, he was talking about art and the meaning of mm -hmm. art. And it was very beautiful. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't expect that. And what came out was something that, that is so true, to, that I feel is so true. He said, you don't choose art. Art chooses you. And it... it really resonated very deeply. But in terms of surprises, overall, uh, outside of the individual stories, I was surprised at not the differences between the generations, but more the similarities and how there was that bridge over these decades of all of us being the same. And that was very beautiful. And that was something I, I didn't know that I, I couldn't predict. So I think that was a, a big surprise. Sure. Thank you for your question. Thank you. Who's over here? Hi. Um, the sense of community here is palpable. Uh, I, I wish I were from the Bronx. Um, <laughs> but as someone who hasn't spent much time there, uh, it'd be great if each of you could give me, as a someone who's going up there for a day, uh, a place that's special for you, uh, can be somewhere to eat, a park, sort of place that I would want to go. 
Oh, I always great. I would say the first place is to come to our office. We are located <laughs> in the Bronx still. You know, like um, the other guy had mentioned, we're in Hunts Point by Lafayette and Manita, so we're still there. Like now that we started and lived, we we, we there to stay. So we welcome, you know, task crew. You know, that would be the first place you could come, and from there I would show you different part of the neighborhood to eat. They got Spanish food. Chinese, whatever you need, you know, it's there, you know what I'm saying? We show you the artwork, you know, the stuff that we do every day, you know, but you got to call before so coming. <laughs> got to call. Uh, for, me, for me, I think uh, someplace definitely to see is Pelham Bay Park. Um, what, me and my family, we would go there for picnics, and then, like, growing up, that was like, our little Hamptons or something. It was like, you know, <laughs> it, was a, it was a big vacation getaway, just taking a six train all the way up to the end, so. <laughs> I mean, it's just, for me, there's just so much, there's different things, depends on what you want to do. We have you know, nature, we have animals, we have rivers, we have parks, and I don't know, all of it to me, it's just been, you know, and I still enjoy yeah. being from the Bronx, and I, I, didn't, I couldn't even direct you to one place because there's just so much that I like, you know? And the Yankees. Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you like uh, Italian food, there's a great little Italy in the mm. Bronx. Arthur Authentic. Avenue. Yeah. Arthur Avenue. Arthur Avenue. Even though it's a tourist destination, <laughs> it's real. <laughs> and the, the people there are real, the stores are real. It's very down to earth. Uh, terrific place to go. If you want uh, something like uh, the Bronx Botanical, well, it's the New York Botanical Garden, it's, it's known throughout the world as being tops, and it's absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. And the zoo is right across the street. How about you, Regis? Well, <laughs> um, I think I'm going to put you in touch with Freakin' Fidelity. <laughs> <laughs> You're in for see. a hell of a great day. <laughs> I, I, I'll add one thing, even though I'm not from the Bronx, uh, and I think we ought to close on this because it's getting, we've been here a long time, I don't want to try anybody's patience, but I know with this crowd we could go till midnight if we wanted to. The one thing that I would suggest is that you go to the Botanical Garden in the Bronx and you walk down the main path and a little bit over to your left, you'll get to a bench that I gave to Arlene for her birthday last year. And on the bench is a plaque that says, Arlene Alda, just a kid from the Bronx. No kidding. <laughs> That's a great story. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92yondemand.org. 